name. Amen. As we turn to this passage, we recognize it's a, it's a fairly dark uh, passage. It's a, a fairly difficult passage when we read the details in Matthew's narrative. And yet it's a, a passage that's so relevant to our world today because we know that Christ and his church continue to live under great oppression and persecution. Some of you may have been uh, watching your news feed over these last few days and uh, you heard the details of what happened over Christmas in central Nigeria. Saturday before Christmas, Christmas Eve, early hours of Christmas morning there in Plateau State in Nigeria, 26 villages were targeted during a series of coordinated attacks committed by Islamic uh, militants. Hundreds of homes were burned, Eight church buildings were consumed by fire. Thousands of innocent villagers were displaced or injured in those attacks. And more than 140 believers were murdered, including two pastors and their families. Terrible news. Sad news coming from another part of God's kingdom. The attacks on Christ and his church Go all the way back here to Herod's murderous attempts upon the life of Jesus. And yet it's a threat, as we read it here, a threat that should not surprise us, given what has been foretold in the scriptures. What we have in this passage is this theme of prophecy fulfilled. We think back to last week and how the wise men from the east were guided towards Bethlehem, according to the words of the prophecy of Micah in chapter 5. And now here, this morning, we have prophecies fulfilled in the events of Jesus' early childhood. We know very little about that childhood, but we do know these details. And three times, this was to fulfill. So in it all... As we look at the details of the story, in it all we remember that the God who protected his son, who preserved the life of his son Jesus, will protect and watch over the church in this new year. So we're going to look at this passage together. Let's think of three themes here, three uh, titles. First of all, we have night flight to Egypt. Secondly, slaughter in Bethlehem. And thirdly, return to Nazareth. Let's begin there with Egypt. Let's look at verses 13 to 15. You can imagine uh, Mary and Joseph. They're lying in bed at night talking. Just talking about those incredible, precious, valuable gifts that have just been given to them. They've come to their door of their home in Bethlehem. They receive these great gifts and they're, they're talking about them. Maybe we'll, you'll be able to afford a, a carpenter's shop, Joseph, in Bethlehem. Maybe no more road trips for us as a, as a couple. And then Joseph falls asleep during the night. Drifts off. Imagine his alarm on hearing again the angel's urgent call to upsticks. Move your family all the way from Bethlehem, 150 kilometers or so south to the land of Egypt. So as we hear this warning from the angel in Joseph's dream, we recognize that the incarnation was real. Jesus, fully God, 
also fully man, his life was in real danger from those sharpened swords of Herod's men. But notice how God uses ordinary means to protect his son. He didn't supernaturally hide Jesus away in Bethlehem. He didn't mysteriously close the eyes of these guards of Herod as he came to search for Jesus. No. Instead, under cover of darkness, Joseph and Mary begin that long arduous journey all the way south to Egypt with their infant son. You have to admire Joseph. Again, he gets this dream, he gets this call of God, and there he goes, takes his family, and sets out on that journey south, heading off to Egypt where he possibly would be reunited with some of the one million strong Jewish population in that land. Any friends, perhaps some family too. But he's going into exile with his family. Now as we look at these events and we ask ourselves a question. Did, did these events take God by surprise? Well no, because God knew Herod's murderous intents. As he set out to preserve the, the life of his son. Because again, as you look at verse 15. It's all about the fulfillment of the prophecies. Let's read there in verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what is quoted there is, are the words of Hosea, another prophet of God, chapter 11, verse 1. And there we read, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So what we have there is God's covenant love for his son Israel and that love revealed in his delivering his people Israel out of exile in Egypt to bring them back to the promised land. Now, Matthew, as he quotes Hosea here, he knows that the original context was this, was this great exile and this great exodus back into the land. But he takes these words 700 years after Hosea, and he applies these words to point to Jesus as the true Israel, the true Israel being brought out of Egypt. Pointing ahead to a, a greater exodus in Christ's redeeming work for us. So you have there Herod's murderous rage. It's met by the Lord's protection of his Son, the Messiah, his king, in this night flight to Egypt. Look at his command, verse 13. Very clear. He says, flee to Egypt. And that word flee gives us our word fugitive. Or think of the word refugee today. The UN uh, Refugee Agency uh, describes that at the end of September, there are over 114 million refugees in our world today, displaced by war, persecution, violence, human rights violations. Globally, 114 million people in our world today, including some of those believers there in central Nigeria, fleeing villages that have been burned down, fleeing homes that have been burned down. Many of those refugees around the world today are, are believers. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And the Lord has a heart for those refugees. He identifies with their suffering. He, he calls you and I today. He calls the church today to come alongside them as we pray for them, as we support them. And perhaps even in this city, welcome them into our homes, our communities, our churches. And even when you and I just get a, a brief glimpse of their suffering and we perhaps endure a little part of that suffering in our own lives, we, we look to the one, we look to Jesus who knows. He's gone there before us. He's walked that path before us. So we have that night flight to Egypt. Let's look on verses 16 to 18 and we see secondly the slaughter in Bethlehem. Now Matthew thankfully spares us the grim details of what actually occurred. We can only imagine the heartbreak of those dozen plus families there in Bethlehem who, who lost their infant sons on that terrible night. Heartbreak. Herod, look at verse 16. Herod was truly out of his mind with rage. When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under. Just read there, his paranoia is just kicking in he's he's been tricked that's what he believes and yet the wise men from the east were merely obeying God's call to go back in a different way he became furious his anger is just seething and boiling up because he sees some kind of rival to his throne in this new king of the of the Jews and yet we read there verse 18 this then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Look at the details, verse 17. A voice, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah 31, 15. There we have the picture of Rachel. She is the much-loved wife of Jacob. She stands here as a representative of all the, the weeping mothers of Israel who'd watched their sons, their children, taken off into exile in Babylon. And now all of that prefigures Bethlehem's mothers weeping inconsolably over Herod's cruelty in, in robbing them of their, of their sons. Think of those who who watched children being burned to death there in Nigeria over Christmas weekend, slaughtered openly in that land, in that region. Heartbreak. We see the roots of Herod's action here in the ongoing conflict between Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go all the way back to the fall. Genesis chapter 3. All the way back to God's words. To the, to the enemy. The devil. In chapter 3 verse 15. He says to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring. And her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. And that bruising. Happening right there. In those Bethlehem homes, the attack of the evil one. 
We get a picture of this conflict in the book of Revelation as a hideous dragon steps upon the scene. It's like a a scene out of the hobbits, you could say here. Right there is a figure of Satan as a destroyer. Revelation 12, verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So when she bore a child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Here we see the child, the Lord Jesus Christ, protected. His life preserved. Herod's attempt upon his life, inspired by Satan, who had set out to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Lord God protects his life all the way to the cross where Jesus freely, willingly laid down his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Herod's violent, violent opposition to Jesus, it's not expect, unexpected. Nor his, is his raging war on God's people on his church today. And yet in this all, we come back to the prophecy here, God isn't missing in this dark tragedy. Again, we see the context of hope in Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah 31 verse 17, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So there is a sense of hope here. Covenant-keeping God who would restore the, the weeping mothers. The heir to David's throne had come and the exile was over as the true Son of God came to inaugurate this new covenant in Christ Jesus. So we have Herod's wrath and we have God's preservation of his Son. And we have hope today. Even as we identify Satan's face behind such wicked rulers and leaders as Herod's. Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you know her, she explains suffering in a, in a very clear way. She calls it uh, splashovers from hell. Maybe you've been out biking, you've been out cycling on a really wet day. I remember getting caught in Sydney cycling home from the office one day and I, I got absolutely soaked by torrential rain. But just the icing on the cake as I, as I neared refuge when Rhoda picked me up was the fact that a big truck went past and just went through the puddle and I just was deluged with water, soaked to my skin. Splashovers from hell. That's what you can see in our world today. Splashovers from hell. Satan, the accuser, has been defeated. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. Forever disqualified as the accuser of believers. Even as he will fling accusations against you, believer, in this new year. How do we respond? Well, we respond with the gospel. We respond with those words of assurance we used earlier from Romans 8 verse 1. Satan, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. And let's look finally then at return 
to Nazareth from the, the slaughter in Bethlehem. Let's turn to verses 19 to 23. Herod and his co-conspirators, when they heard about this, uh, when they heard that Jesus was free, Joseph received another message from the angel. Simply, the message was, it's time to go home. Time to leave Egypt and go back. Not to Bethlehem. Notice the historical detail there that uh, Matthew gives us in verse 22. They're not to go back to Bethlehem. That's where Archelaus was in power. Who was Archelaus? Well, he was one of Herod's sons. He was a, a chip of the old block, you could say. He was notorious for his cruelty. Eventually, even the Roman Caesar had to put an end to his 10-year reign and send him off into exile in the land of Gaul. So Joseph, instead of going back to Bethlehem, was told to take his little family and avoid that area, and they go back to the city of Nazareth in the land of Galilee in the north that was under, uh, under the reign of uh, a milder rule of another Herod called Antipas. So there they go to Nazareth, that had once been the hometown of Mary and Joseph. Back to Nazareth again in fulfillment of the words of the prophets. Look at verse 23. That was, was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now if you want this afternoon to search the Old Testament prophets for that prophecy, you won't find it. It's actually not there. What Matthew has is this general assurance, words not recorded for you and I today, that Jesus would be a Nazarene. That he would grow up in that little town, halfway between the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, a land and a city, a town of Nazareth that was much despised in Jesus' day in its obscurity. To be called a, a Nazarene would be to be uh, given a, a term of derision. It would be to describe someone who is rough and rude. You say someone came from that city and it's derogatory. I'm not going to name any cities this morning. But you say that's where they're from. They're from, that's the name. And that's what was going on here. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 46. One of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, summed up this kind of skepticism that a prophet could ever come out of the town of Nazareth. Philip introduced Nathaniel to Jesus. What did Nathaniel say? He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's pretty harsh, isn't it, right there? You think how different would it be if Jesus had been known as Jesus of Bethlehem, the royal city of David. Instead, he would spend most of the first 30 years of his life in that hometown obscurity. He would grow from childhood to manhood, despised, and that was before he even began his public ministry. And yet again, this is all part of the will of God's sovereign plan for his son to be despised and rejected. Familiar words of Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Or the words of the psalm, Psalm 22, verse 6, speaking of the coming Messiah. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and, de- and despised by the people. And we think of Jesus' last hours before his death. He was, he was mocked. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He had his head crowned with thorns. He suffered the most horrendous death upon a cross. Jesus knows. He knows when we suffer because of our faith. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the 17th century, wrote these words from a a prison cell. He said this, Those who would be with Christ must be with him even when the rain is in Christ's face. The rain is in Christ's face in Scotland and anybody who would be with him must have the rain on their face too. Anybody who's ever lived or been to Scotland knows that the rain is on your face at a regular time. And uh, we see that analogy there. And we look at our land and we can honestly say, yes, the rain is on our face in Canada. The rain of oppression, of persecution is real. It may simply mean that you're cancelled because of your biblical worldview. It may be you're mocked or ridiculed in the workplace or at school, or your attempts to share the gospel may be flat out rejected. But the rain, it's on our face. And so as we look to this story, we see that life began in Nazareth for this one surviving baby boy from Bethlehem. He's safe now. Look at verse 19. Herod's death is recorded. And again, it's a timely reminder as we read our news feed, as we see the news that world leaders like Herod, who rage against Jesus in 2024, will one day die. Again, the words of the psalmist help us here with perspective. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Is God troubled by the murderous intent of those Islamic militants in Nigeria? Is the Lord troubled by an autocrat like Vladimir Putin? Or is he troubled by the leadership of Hamas or the progressive ideology and agendas in our land today? Well, no, because God simply laughs at their puny attempts to rebel against him. Psalm 2 verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. A child refugee, a a displaced person, Jesus despised as a, a Nazarene, and yet we read this was to fulfill. It was God's sovereign will to protect his son in the face of the murderous rage of those who who would attempt to destroy his life. During the week, I came across a sermon title called Christmas Makes the Devil Furious. I had to listen to it. It's Kevin DeYoung, a PCA pastor. 
in the sermon, he says, why does Satan hate Christmas? Why is the devil angry? He gives two reasons. Number one, he's angry that Christ has defeated him. Because you see that, that toddler that was taken to safety in Egypt, brought back to Nazareth, he would grow to live the perfect, obedient life we couldn't live. He would suffer and die for our sins in our place. And he would defeat the power of the enemy. Satan's final blow struck there as Jesus died and rose again. Satan is defeated. Number two, he is angry because he cannot defeat the church. Think back to Revelation 12. We had the, the dragon come on the scene. Let's end with the words of Revelation 12, 13 to 17. We have the, the wings of an eagle. We read the scene there. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. So the, the woman, symbol of the church, rescued. We read on. Then from the mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. What a way to start a new year. Dragons, wings of eagles. And yet what an encouragement as we begin this new year that in Jesus Christ we have not only the one who, who secured that final victory over Satan on the cross, but who is with us and who will protect his church until he brings us safely home. Let's pray together. We do praise you, O God, for your gracious provision, that you are indeed our, our refuge and our strength, that we do indeed lift our eyes to the hills and find in you our help, our stronghold, our deliverer. Lord God, we praise you for your promises and your word that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. So give us boldness. As we embark in this new year, Lord, give us courage. As we take our stand for you, Lord Jesus, as we bear witness to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that others too would know deliverance from the darkness and come into the light of Jesus Christ as Savior. Oh, Lord God, we offer up our prayers to you now, and we 